0: This morning, again, I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew's Gospel, the 24th chapter, as we continue our verse-by-verse examination of this wonderful, wonderful Gospel. While you're turning there, may I just say that it's always a joy to stand before you and open up the Word. Sometimes... A text presents itself in such a way that you can preach it. Other times it presents itself in such a way that you have to teach it. And many of these, you will see, are ones that need to be taught. And so, again, if you will bear with me as we get a bit technical in some of the things that we must learn. But may I also say that it is important for me... To honor the one who has called me and equipped me, I answer to him, not to you. And he has asked me to preach the whole counsel of God. So even when we come to the prophetic literature, we teach it. And certainly it's always a joy to come before you, whether we're doing more preaching, more application types of things, or more teaching where you understand more of the precision of the word of God, In either case, the word of God has a way of addressing our pride and our selfishness, uh, our spiritual apathy, the lust of the flesh, the worldly temptations that we have, especially throughout the week. And so now we come to this pinnacle of a worship service where we have the opportunity to allow the spirit of God to minister to us through his word and to restore once again the dominion of God in our life. By transporting our souls, if you will, into the presence of God where we can delight in his glory. So this morning, we find ourselves in the fourth part of a series on Christ's greatest prophetic discourse. And we will focus our attention specifically this morning on verse 15 of Matthew 24. Therefore, Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things out that that are in his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. But pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. Again, may I remind you of the context here. It has been in the Passion Week of the Lord Jesus just before his crucifixion, where Jesus was in the temple courts and he was parrying the blows of the Pharisees and the scribes. And then on Wednesday, evening of the Passion Week and the final hours of Jewish rejection. In Jesus' last public sermon, you will recall that he had a scathing denunciation of the false shepherds, the religious leaders that really represented apostate Israel. And after pronouncing seven curses of divine judgment upon them that we read about in chapter 23 that we've studied previously, He then gave one final proclamation in verses 34 and 36, promising judgment that would fall upon that generation. But Jesus concluded his deadly pronouncement upon Israel with a farewell promise. And in verse 36, he says, your house is being left to you desolate. But verse 39, I say to you from now on, you shall not see me until you say. Not unless you say, but until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. By the way, dear friends, there is an inspired refutation to those who would say that God is finished with the Jew, that God is finished with Israel. Indeed, Isaiah has prophesied in Isaiah 62, verse 2, that there will come a day when the Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. And in verse four of that chapter, we read, you shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate. Now, obviously, this prediction of divine judgment upon Israel's temple aroused intense desire in the disciples for more information. They are asking, well, what will be the nature and what will be the duration of Israel's desolation. When is this going to happen? What do you mean? You shall not see me until we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then in chapter 24, verse three, they ask him, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then in verses four through 14, he answers the disciples who I believe are representatives of the Jewish remnant that will be alive during the tribulation. And there he describes six very specific signs called birth pangs in verse 8. Signs that will appear just prior to the Lord's coming again. We've studied those in previous weeks. Those six signs are false messiahs, nations at war, natural disasters of epic proportions, Persecution of tribulation saints, defection of and betrayal by false believers, and mass evangelism. And then he gives another fascinating prophetic revelation in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, and so on. Now, what does this mean? When you see the abomination of desolation, literally in the original language, it means the abomination which makes desolation, which causes desolation, which lays waste. Now, first of all, abomination is a term that we don't hear much these days, especially in our culture, where there's really no such thing as abomination. You can see practically anything on television, and nobody is appalled with anything they see anymore. But an abomination is a detestable thing, an object of utter abhorrence, something which is repulsive. In fact, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that term is used to describe idols and cultic practices, sacrilegious objects, Even paraphernalia and some of the rites of the wicked pagan worship. Things that are repulsive or vile, revolting things that would desecrate a holy place. By the way, that same term is used in Revelation 17 verses 4 through 5 to describe that great horror of the final apostasy. You will recall Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. This will be the ultimate ecumenical church, which will be an enormous amalgam of apostate religions led by the false prophet that deceives the world. We read about that in, even in Matthew 24, verses 10 through 13. So, an abomination, dear friends, is anything that offends the holiness of God and evokes His wrath. So Jesus warns those who will be alive in that day, when you see this abomination that causes desolation, when you see this thing standing in the holy place, a reference to the temple, run for your life. Run for safety. Seek refuge. Now, what is this abomination? What is this vile object? Well, Jesus gives us a hint. He says it's that which was spoken of through Daniel, the prophet. Now, it's interesting. Daniel spoke of this three times in Daniel 9.27, in Daniel 11.31, and Daniel 12.11. And we know that in Daniel 11, for example, this was a clear reference to the hideous defilement of the temple by the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who ruled Palestine as a surrogate of the Greek empire of that day. He did so from 175 to 165 B.C. We see this again in Daniel 11, 21 through 35. By the way, Antiochus Epiphanes demanded to be called Theos Epiphanes. In Greek, that means manifest God. The guy was filled with pride, as are most dictators even today. And he slaughtered thousands of Jewish men He even sold the Jewish women and children into slavery. But worse yet, he sacrificed a pig on the altar of the temple and even forced the priests to eat the flesh of the most unclean of all animals. And then on top of all of that, he erected an idol of Zeus in the temple because he considered himself to be the manifestation of Zeus. And it's interesting that his enemies nicknamed him Epimenes rather than Epiphanes because Epimenes means madman, crazy man, the insane one. And I find it interesting, it's very ironic that at the end of his days because he was unable to defeat the Jews led by Judas Maccabeus, he literally went insane. He went crazy and died as a madman. But obviously Jesus wasn't talking only about some past historical event when he was talking to the disciples, nor was Daniel. But he was talking about something yet future. Daniel's prophecy of Antiochus Epiphanes, dear friends, was a preview of the ultimate abomination of desolation that will be committed by the Antichrist. I want you to turn to the prophet Daniel In Daniel chapter 9, I'm going to camp here for a few minutes. Daniel chapter 9, while you're turning there, may I remind you of the context. Daniel has been exiled into Babylonian captivity. Earlier in Daniel 2, he explained the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, that great statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw. And there God revealed to him the successive stages of Gentile world domination Existing throughout world history, that of Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome, and then a revived Rome that we believe will happen someday. And then finally, how the Messiah will ultimately defeat them all and reconcile His covenant people to Himself in saving faith and reestablish them back into the land of promise. So now, He prays for His people in Daniel chapter 9, in verse 2, we read, How Daniel is recalling the years of captivity the Lord had promised through Jeremiah, the prophet, 70 years. And that time is now almost over. And therefore, Daniel is imploring the the Lord to reestablish his beloved Israel back into the land of promise. And then God speaks to him through the angel Gabriel And notice particularly here in Daniel 9, verse 24, he says something very interesting. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Seventy weeks, he says. Now, literally, this is referring to seventy sevens or seventy heptads, which would be units of seven. In other words, this would be four hundred and ninety years, according to verse two. Four hundred and ninety years have been decreed for your people in your holy city before six goals can be accomplished to finish the transgression To make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. The first three of these were fulfilled partially in principle, but they, along with the other three, await complete fulfillment in a day yet future. So here God reveals the future far beyond Antiochus to a person we would call Antichrist. So here's the point. 490 years of judgment must occur before these six glorious objectives will be realized. 490 years before the Messiah would establish the long-awaited kingdom for which Daniel prayed. And then the next verse tells him when the clock will begin ticking. Verse 25, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. In other words, sixty-nine weeks or sixty-nine sevens or four hundred and eighty-three years. And then it will be built again with plaza and mode, even in times of distress. Now what's fascinating, and I won't go into great detail or we would be here for a number of hours, but in Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 5 and 6, we read of King Artaxerxes, how he issued the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. And he did that in 445 B.C. And then, even as God promised, seven weeks and 60 weeks, in other words, 69 weeks or 483 years, elapsed until, as Daniel predicted through this divine inspiration, until Messiah the Prince, until the Lord Jesus Christ passed through the multitudes, the cheering multitudes, As he entered into Jerusalem as their Messiah, even though they were very confused as to what he was really there for. But then notice in verse 26, then after the 62 weeks, in other words, at the termination of the 69 heptads, the the 62 weeks plus the seven weeks for a total of 69 weeks after this, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And here's the point. Indeed, even as it was prophesied, 483 years after the 69 weeks had begun, the Messiah was cut off and had nothing. Literally, it means he had no one. And we know that as we read the Gospels, we see that all of his followers abandoned him when he was arrested, even during his trial and his crucifixion. So the 69 weeks were then fulfilled in toto. And then we know that 49 years later, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, a clear reference to the Roman invasion in 70 AD. And it's important for you to understand that all of this occurred before the final 70th week is even revealed in verse 27 and then God reveals what will happen after the fall of Jerusalem its end will come with a flood even to the end there will be war desolations are determined and this describes the entire intervening period before this final 70th week in fact a more literal rendering of the end of verse 26 would be this and the end of it will be in the overflowing and unto the end there will be war A strict determination of desolations, or it could be translated the determined amount of desolations. And certainly there are undeniable parallels here to Jesus' predictions in Matthew 24, verses 7 through 22. Now, when we examine the context here of verse 27 and other parallel prophecies, we must conclude that many years must transpire before verse 27. And we ultimately then discover that the 70th week, the last seven years, will occur just before Christ's coming, His second coming. And therefore, there will be a long period of, as 26 says, verse 26 says, war and desolations. This will be the fate of the covenant people until the 70th week ushers in the kingdom, ultimately. And indeed, this has been the history of the Jew from that day to the present. But then notice the events of the 70th week. As once again, the prophetic text sweeps Daniel from the near to the distant future. In verse 27 of Daniel 9, he says, And he. Now let's stop here for a second. Who? Who, who is the he? Well, again, if you will indulge me a moment to be a bit technical. Hebrew grammar requires that the subject of the verb be linked to the last eligible antecedent. And in this case, it would be the the prince of verse 26, the, the, the ruler of the Roman people who destroyed Jerusalem. Now, because of the events described at the end of verse 26 and those in verse 27, not to mention many other parallel passages, this cannot refer simply to um, the the Roman ruler of A.D. 70. So it would be be reasonable to assume that it refers to another ruler of the Roman Empire, of a Roman Empire, and we believe this to be the one mentioned in chapter 2 of Daniel, the little horn that comes up in the midst of the ten horns in Daniel 7, as well as the tin-horned beast of chapter 2, which would be the Antichrist. Friends, remember, Satan always tries to counterfeit what God does. Satan has his own trinity. It, It consists of Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet. And certainly, at the end of the day, at the end of the age, Satan will raise up his version of Christ, the Antichrist, and he will allow him to rise to, or actually cause him to rise to world domination as a sovereign God allows all of this, all of this to happen. It's interesting, and you may recall in Daniel 7.24 that Antichrist will rule a massive kingdom that basically comprises the old Roman Empire. Uh, a Western confederacy, as we read the prophetic literature of a united Europe that that Daniel describes as a ten-nation empire. And again, this very well could be the current European common market. But back to verse 27, and he, now referring, I believe, to the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So, you must understand, 69 weeks of judgment have elapsed. 483 years from the decree of Artaxerxes to the crucifixion of Christ. But there's 70 weeks, ultimately, that were decreed. So there's one more heptad that remains, one more seven year period. And here in Daniel nine twenty seven, and remember, this is the very text that Jesus refers to as the prophetic template that indicates the chronological sequence of the beginning of birth pains. You read about that in Matthew twenty four, verses fifteen and sixteen, and Mark thirteen, fourteen which also, by the way, correlates with the seal judgments of Revelation 4 through 6. Here in this very text, we get a glimpse into what the saints of that day must look for and what they must endure. Now, the text describes a great deceiver who will lure Israel into a protective agreement called a firm covenant. By the way, in Revelation 6, 2, we have an expansion of this. In that text, you have a a, a description of, of the first seal judgment, an era of unparalleled world peace, which will really be a great hoax, a calm, if you will, before the storm. That text describes a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow. It's interesting that it's a bow with no arrows, implying, I believe, a diplomatic, not a military victory. A peace sealed by a covenant, not by war. And that text in Revelation 6, 2 goes on to say, and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer, which is a, another picture of Antichrist, the one who will conquer the world in a bloodless coup. Now, it's easy to understand today why modern Israel would be interested in protection. Why Israel would someday want someone to give them needed protection and therefore get sucked into a covenant. Israel today is the size of New Jersey, 9,000 square miles. It is surrounded by 22 Arab countries, all of which want to kill them. Five million square miles. And there are 145 million people who are supported And aligned with the Muslim world, and that Muslim world consists of about one billion people. And they have an area twice the size of the United States and 672 times the size of minuscule Israel. Israel has approximately 5.2 million people and only 4 million of them are Jews. And yet, they are considered today the great Goliath. Anti-Semitism is sweeping across the globe today, dear friends, like a wildfire. It's even in the churches. According to FLAME, which stands for Facts and Logic About the Middle East, there was a recent poll taken in Europe, and they found, and I quote, Israel to be they found Israel to be the greatest menace to the peace of the world far ahead of this murderous regimes of those of Iran or of North Korea. Today in Israel, we see that they are fighting for their life. They are the most hated and vulnerable nation on earth, and they're really their only allies, to the United States, and that is gradually waning. Most of the world hates the United States as well as Israel. All you have to do is go abroad and you will see that. And that's certainly evidenced by the escalating animosity of the Arab Islamic world and their Russian and Chinese allies. And due to the proliferation of nuclear weapons, we see brutal totalitarian regimes today threatening the civilized world not to mention the very planet on which we live. And every day it gets worse. You see much about Iran in the news today, don't you? And it's well known that they consistently support terrorism, including al-Qaeda and Hezbollah. And it's well known that they have been concealing nuclear research for the past 18 years, despite their signing in 1970 of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Since 2001, Iran has made significant progress in its nuclear program, but not without a great deal of help from Pakistan and North Korea, as well as research institutes and commercial companies in Russia and in China. Western intelligence sources report that Iran has constructed a number of nuclear facilities and they continue to build more. Well, while this indeed is a threat against the United States, it's far more of a threat against Israel just 2,000 kilometers away. Iran refuses to recognize Israel, and their top officials frequently call for the destruction of the Jewish state. In fact, I was reading about a major military parade on September 22nd, 2003, and there Iran showed off six of its Shahab 3 missiles, which were decorated with anti Israeli and anti U.S. slogans, including one saying Israel should be, quote, wiped off the map. Defense Minister Shaol Mafaz. In a lecture delivered to top Israeli Defense Force commanders defined Iran's nuclear efforts as, quote, the gravest danger to Israel's existence in the future. I was reading in the Jewish World Review, a man by the name of Ed Koch, and he was talking about his dismay at the Iranian president, Ahmadinejad, or whatever it is, his statement about Israel must be wiped off the face of the map. You've seen that on the news. And he says that if if Iran were to launch a nuclear attack against Israel, he feels, as many other people in Israel feel, that there would be little chance of any support coming to, to help them. Maybe some from the United States, but they're not even sure of that, given the climate in our country today. And Koch goes on to write, and I quote, Regrettably, it appears that world opinion does not accept the fact that the fanatic Islamists comprised of many millions of Muslims worldwide believe that Christians, Jews, Hindus, and other infidels not accepting the supremacy of Islam should die. In a recent poll of the albawaba.com website, which, by the way, covers uh, news uh, throughout the Middle East from an Arab perspective, and they do that, by the way, in both uh, English and and in Arabic, they uh, had a question that people could respond to, and here's the question: Do you think Arab governments should rally behind Iranian calls to wipe out Israel? Seventy-seven point eight percent of the respondents agreed; only twenty-two voted no. Even today, we witness the terrorist attacks almost on a weekly basis in Israel. The Gaza Strip, I've been there, some of you have been there, has really turned into an Islamic fundamentalist terror state supported by Iran. Knesset member Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel says this, and I quote, I think the Palestinian state has already established in Gaza and constitutes an Islamic terror base in our region not too far from central Israel. He went on to say this new state is also being sponsored by Iran, whose arming intentions are in the area of nuclear weapons and its feelings towards Israel are well known, end quote. And friends, may I remind you that in Ezekiel 38, and we've studied this before, there is a detailed description of a satanically led coalition of nations that will come upon Jerusalem, come upon Israel at the end of the tribulation, that battle synonymous with that battle of Armageddon, and it includes Magog, which is Russia, Josephus, the ancient historian, even identified Magog as Russia, along with many other Muslim nations, including the text says Meshach and Tubal, which would be a reference to other nations in Asia Minor, uh, even modern, especially modern Turkey. It mentions Persia, which is modern Iran, Afghanistan, and possibly even Pakistan. It mentions Ethiopia, which is modern Sudan, and Put, which is modern Libya, and Egypt, and on it goes. And, dear friends, when this occurs, not if it occurs, but when this occurs, because it's prophesied that it's going to happen. And when God says it, I believe it. But when this occurs, Israel will have no choice but to turn to a European confederacy for help. As a footnote, people will ask, well, will the United States be a part of this? You know, the Bible really doesn't say, but I believe that when the rapture occurs, the United States will, will crumble in many ways and it will probably be absorbed in the European Confederacy and it will only be a shadow of its former self. Now back to Daniel 9.27. He says, and he, this Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many, or the Jews, for one week. But in the middle of the week, in other words, after three and a half years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Now, it's interesting. Obviously, this implies that there's going to be a temple. A temple has to be built. And I've been there and I've talked to some of the people in Jerusalem, and there are plans for a temple that are just sitting there. They say that they could put it up in less than a year. But it's interesting that the Antichrist is going to demand that their worship be stopped in the middle of the week after three and a half years. Now let me give you some more context here. In Revelation chapter 12, verses seven through nine, you read about how Satan and his minions will be cast to, to earth in the middle of the seven year period. This will infuriate Satan, who becomes even more desperate and more determined to thwart the purposes of God and to annihilate. Israel, God's covenant people. And in Revelation 12, verse 12, we, we read, Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Now, back to Daniel 9:27. At the end of the verse, it says, And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And again, now remember, in Matthew 24:15, Jesus is saying, "I want you to go back to Daniel. I want you to go back to this text. This is the one you've got to look for." So in the middle of the week, here, according to Daniel 9:27, or after three and a half years, this satanically possessed Antichrist will seize the temple. He will betray the Jews and he will demand to be worshipped, just like his forerunner, Antiochus Epiphanes. And the word of God tells us that this will happen for 42 months, according to Revelation 13, 5. In other words, the last half of the seven years. And now this is the one, dear friends, that is pictured in Revelation 13, verses 1 and verse 5, as the beast coming up out of the sea. And he was given a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And then in verses seven and eight of Revelation 13, it goes on to do say it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Now, what will he do? What is this abomination that makes desolate? What is it that he will do that is so utterly abhorrent to God? Well, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 gives us an understanding of this. It describes him as the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. And it goes on to say that he will take his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Dear dear friends, if you want to evoke the wrath of God, you just display yourself as God and see what happens. As I think about it, Satan has always wanted to be worshipped, hasn't he? That's always been his goal. This is why he is so determined, even to this day, to bring about so many false teachers and false doctrine. Again, Satan doesn't doesn't care what you believe as long as it's not the truth. And this is why he will cause a proliferation of false messiahs, as Jesus has predicted, right before the Lord returns, and false prophets. He is the father of lies. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 and 10, he goes on to describe him. And it says, he is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Now, it's interesting, again, in the Greek grammar. It indicates that this detestable thing, standing in the holy place, will be some kind of a permanent image, a permanent idol, probably some display of of the Antichrist Himself, and it will be permanently displayed in the temple. Dear friends, this is the abomination that makes desolate, to which Jesus referred in Matthew twenty four fifteen. Now, as a footnote, it's interesting. In Daniel twelve eleven, we read more about this. And from the time it says that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1290 days, which is interesting. It's 30 days beyond the three and a half years. I'll explain that in a second. In fact, in Revelation chapter 12, verse six. It indicates that this period of unprecedented persecution against Israel, this great tribulation when God will even miraculously protect his people, it says in Revelation 12.6 that that lasts for 1260 days, 30 days less than Daniel's 1290. And I believe, as many do, that the additional 30 days of Daniel's prophecy is thought to account for the added period of time between the time the Lord descends upon the Mount of Olives, and you will recall the prophetic literature, especially in Joel 3, when he descends, it will cause a great valley to occur, the valley of Jehoshaphat, perhaps the, the valley of decision as Joel describes it. So it will probably be the time between that happens and when he ultimately judges the nations that we read about in Zechariah 14, verses four through five. And it's interesting that in Daniel 12:12 12, 12, he even adds 45 more days that would seem to allow for the establishment of the leadership throughout the glorious earthly kingdom. So in summary, God has decreed 1260 days of unprecedented tribulation then an additional 30 days after the Lord's return to judge the nations and perhaps even then 45 more days to establish His kingdom around the world. Now, friends, I've got to pause for a second. It is beyond me, and I say this with all due respect for those that would differ with me, but it is beyond me how you can spiritualize all of these precise numbers of days. Or, or, or how anyone can possibly torture the events of all these prophetic texts and somehow squeeze them into the narrow box of an A.D. 70 fulfillment. It is absolutely beyond me. And again, I believe that people do so for philosophical, not exegetical considerations. Beloved, the prophetic scriptures are replete with the descriptions of a coming tribulation, which will end man's reign upon the earth and will inaugurate God's reign upon the earth when He establishes His glorious kingdom, just as Jesus predicted in Matthew 24. There is predictions all through the Old Testament and even through the New of inconceivable calamities that will encompass the whole world, but will specifically focus on the nation and the people of Israel. There will be a time of great war between the kingdom of darkness, and the kingdom of light. And there's numerous texts that describe this, that describe not only the subject of of Israel and the nation, but even the sequence of events that we have looked at even this morning. In Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 10, verses 20 through 22, here's what the Spirit of God tells us through the prophet. Now it will come about in that day that the remnant of Israel, And those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them. Who's the one that struck them? Well, it's the betrayer, the Antichrist. But will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined. Now, here's the good news overflowing with righteousness. And again, the abomination which makes desolate will ultimately usher in, eventually, at the end of that three and a half years, the glorious righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes back again in power and great glory. Jeremiah the prophet speaks of the same thing in many places. I'll give you but one. In Jeremiah 30, beginning in verse 5, For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all their faces turned pale? Literally what he's describing here is the suffering will be so great that men will be writhing in pain. And we see this in so many other passages. And he goes on to say, alas, for that day is great. There is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress, or Israel's distress, Jacob's trouble. But he will be saved, Israel will be saved from it. And it shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck, and I will tear off their bonds, and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. And in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, we read that Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a great time of distress such as, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And Zechariah. Says the same thing in Zechariah 13, beginning in verse 8 through chapter 14, verse 2. Here's what we read And it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, They are my people! And they will say, the Lord is my God. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be captured. The houses plundered, the women ravished and half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Now, dear friends, Jesus is warning of this time that is coming in Matthew 24 as He speaks to the disciples, the representatives of the Jewish remnant that will remain, that will be there during this time of great tribulation just before the Lord comes. Therefore, in verse 15, He says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And so on. Now, beloved, I believe that the world stage is set right now for the coming of Antichrist. Again, I don't know when any of this will happen, when the church will be snatched away. We don't know the time. But we do know that it's coming and that when it comes, when he comes, the Antichrist comes, according to Revelation 13.3, the whole world will be astonished and follow the beast. And you see how naive people are today. Even in ostensibly Christian churches, they will follow virtually anybody. I want to read you a quote from Dr. David Larson. You may recall several years ago he was here. He's written a number of books, but one of my favorites is Jews, Gentiles, and the Church. I would recommend that you read it Very scholarly work. Here's what he says, quote, The stage for the beast and his religious cohort, the false prophet, is the tribulation period. The hour of trial that is going to come upon the world, Revelation 3.1. Or the time of, quote, messianic woes, end quote, as the Jews have spoken of them. He goes on to say, in this time frame, certain gigantic collectivisms will arise to form the driving wedge of Satan's massive effort to frustrate God's purpose. Problems on earth seem insurmountable. No human leadership seems competent to address the complexity of the issues. A demographic explosion with moral, social, economic, ecological, and political ramifications baffles the think tanks of the world. Humankind's vaunted self-sufficiency evaporates in the face of insoluble questions. The church, notwithstanding her frequent impotence and perennial failure, is now gone. And the salt and light she was affording are missing. Homo sapiens are adrift, rudderless. He goes on to say, nature abhors a vacuum, the old adage has it. The scriptures depict a brilliant, charismatic personality, a demagogue of the first order, striding dramatically onto the stage of human history. It is George Orwell's 1984 and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. So desperate is the human race for solutions and answers that freedom easily becomes a casualty in the panic of security. As the late Paul Henry Spock Prominent Belgian diplomat and astute European strategist put it so boldly. Quote, we do not want another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all the people and to lift us out of the economic morass into which we are sinking. Send us such a man, be he God or devil, we will receive him. End quote. Dear friends, the mood of helplessness is by no means isolated. The distinguished European economist and banker, Paul Mazur, has stated that, and I quote, the large number of governmental bureaus that will have their orbits in the atmosphere of our planet cannot be allowed the freedom to compete and collide with one another. So, in order to control the diverse bureaucracies required, a Politburo will develop and over this group organization, there is likely to arise the final and single arbiter, the master of the order, the total dictator, End quote. I'm going to close with this true story. On June 7, 1967, in the final moments of the Arab-Israeli six-day war, the Jews finally repossessed the Temple Mount area for the first time in 1,897 years. It is said that the Israeli soldiers finally, as they were overcoming the Arab enemies, were so filled with tears and so filled with passion that they literally ran past their Arab enemies who were finally beginning to put down their guns, as they ran past in their final assault, driven by their intense passion to finally get near their precious Temple Mount. And when they did, a half-track pulled up in the midst of all of this, and the chief Ashkenazic rabbi Shlomo Goran stepped out of that half-track With his beard and his long black robe, and he approached the wailing wall that we see today. And he took out the shofar, the ram's horn, and he blew it, signaling all of the Jews from around the world that it was time to come back home. And he announced, and I quote, the days of Messiah have begun. It's interesting that many of the Jews believe, and they've been taught, that the generation that recovers the site of the temple must rebuild the temple. In fact, Rabbi Mendel Lewitz has stated, the rebuilding, quote, of the temple will be the acme of the redemption process. But it's interesting that on that very same day, General Moshe Dayan approached the Western Wall, and here's what he said. We have returned to our holiest of holy places, never to be parted from it again. We earnestly stretch out our hands to our Arab brethren in peace, but we have returned to Jerusalem never to part from her again. And it is said that several hundred thousand Jews that very first week rushed to that wailing wall because that's the closest they can get to where they believe the Holy of Holies of the original temple once stood. Beloved, while we would never want to use current events to interpret Bible prophecy, I believe nonetheless that we would be fools not to see the miracle of modern Israel as at least a demonstration of divine protection, if not a harbinger of the tribulation. So in summary, I believe that the church will someday be snatched away. The Antichrist will appear. He will offer a phony peace plan to the world and certainly to the Jews. The Jews will need the protection. And after three and a half years, according to the prophecies, he will betray them. And he will demand to be worshipped. That will be the abomination which causes desolation. And that will result in unprecedented Desolation throughout the last half of the tribulation period when Satan tries to destroy Israel through Antichrist and his vast armies. That time that Jeremiah calls the time of Jacob's trouble. And then Jesus will return as he has promised. Only this time he will not return in humility but in glory. In power and great glory. And he will crush Satan And the nations of the earth and Israel will repent. Israel will be reconciled back to Jehovah God. They will be restored back to their land. And the establishment of the millennial kingdom will take place. Where we will reign with our Lord and Savior for a thousand years. Beloved, I'm convinced that God is not finished with Israel. In Isaiah 62, verses 11 and 12, we read, Behold, The Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they will call them, quote, the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. Dear friends, these amazing truths should impact all of us who know and love Christ, shouldn't they? Of course they should. And how should they impact us? They they should cause us to rejoice that we serve and we worship a sovereign God who has determined the end from the beginning. That He has decreed all things for His glory. And He has even been so gracious as to reveal some of His eternal purposes In this book. And as we learn them, as we learn the truth, we know that truth is what strengthens our faith, because once again, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So while you may not remember all of the details of the intricacies and the nuances even of the things that I've mentioned this day. I pray that nevertheless, you will remember that God is a sovereign God who is orchestrating all things for our good and his glory and what he says you can take to the bank and we all need to live in the light of his glorious return. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will anchor these truths in the bedrock of our hearts, that we might not be moved by deception or or by error, whether witting or unwitting. And Lord, would that we may relax in, in your great sovereign care. And may we worship and serve you with great joy and anticipation until we see you face to face. For it's in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior, that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.